Brad, not his real name, went to church camp 25 years ago, and at church camp, he made a decision to follow Jesus, but that was 25 years ago, and since then, he has not been to church. As a matter of fact, he frequently participates in recreational drugs, he drinks to excess on a regular basis, and he's lived with three or four girlfriends since then, and he never reads his Bible, but he's convinced he's going to heaven because he prayed a prayer 25 years ago at a church camp. Should Brad have assurance of salvation? Rebecca, not her real name, grew up in a very broken and dysfunctional family. She went off to college, ended up in a sorority, and some of her sorority sisters told her the incredibly good news of Jesus Christ. She could not believe that Jesus would love and accept and forgive someone like her. The moment she heard the gospel, she repented of her sins, put her all of her confidence in Jesus Christ. And since then, she has been growing slowly in godliness. She goes to church, she prays, she reads her Bible, but she sometimes wonders, is my faith real faith? Should Rebecca have assurance of salvation? Now, why bring up the topic of assurance this morning? We are slowly working our way through the Gospel of John, and two weeks ago when I preached last, I read from John 10, 27 to 29, and that text goes like this. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, this text is meant to bring great comfort to the saints, because this text clearly teaches that if you're a Christian, no one will snatch you out of the Son's hand or the Father's hand. But for many, this is where the trouble begins, because they wonder, am I really one of God's sheep. I know what the text says here, but am I one of his sheep? Which raises the question, is it possible for Christians to experience assurance of salvation? Furthermore, uh, is it possible for people to be deceived? <laughs> Should Christians possess assurance of salvation? Now, since I preached on John 10, I've talked to many of you, and many of you have asked me questions about this wonderful subject of assurance of salvation. Now, I rarely interrupt a sermon series to answer questions, but I've never actually preached on the, the doctrine of assurance before, so I thought this morning would be a great opportunity for all of us to learn and rejoice uh, about the doctrine of assurance of salvation. This is a precious doctrine, uh, and God wants the saints to experience assurance of salvation. Now, to help us understand this doctrine this morning, I want to uh, look at two headings. First is three grounds, and second is four people. So, three grounds of assurance and four different types of people that this will apply to. So, first is 
the three grounds of assurance. Most theologians argue that there are uh, primarily three grounds of assurance, three things that you and I can base our assurance of salvation on. Now, think about this like a three-legged stool. All three legs are important, but one leg is thicker than the rest of the legs. But nonetheless, we should think of all three of these things together uh, because they are inseparable. So, what are those three grounds of assurance that theologians like to talk about? First is God's promises. Second is God's fruit. And third is God's testimony. So, those three things work together to assure the saints um, of salvation. Let's look at all three of those grounds uh, in some detail. The first ground of assurance is uh, God's promise. God's promise. Well, what specific promise grounds our assurance of salvation? Well, it's God's glorious promise to save all those who believe. Let's look at a few of those promises for a moment. Uh, You're all familiar with many of these promises, and they're glorious promises. Uh, John 3.16, John writes, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God promises that whoever believes in Jesus Christ will not perish but have eternal life. That's a promise. If you believe that promise, then you'll have eternal life. How about Romans 10, 9 to 10? The Apostle Paul writes this, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul is saying, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you will be saved. Verse 10, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That's good news. Paul does not say to be saved, you have to go to church, read your Bible seven days a week, give lots of money away, and pray all the time. No. He promises, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you will be saved. It's that simple. One more promise. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Again, Paul is saying that we are saved by grace through faith. If you are currently believing the gospel, God promises that you will be saved and that he will keep you or preserve you until the end. This means that right now, if you are believing the gospel, you can have assurance. According to the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 14, saving faith is accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone. If you are currently accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone, you can have assurance. God promises all those who believe will be justified, forgiven, adopted, redeemed, and reconciled to God. That's a promise. And God never, ever breaks his promises. Now, over the years, sadly, I've known people 
that have decided to leave the Protestant faith and become Roman Catholic. Now, why is that so sad? Well, it should be sad for all of us because when you leave the Protestant faith and become Roman Catholic, you are giving up something very precious. You're giving up assurance of salvation. Roman Catholics very, very clearly teach, this goes back to the Council of Trent in the 16th century, that assurance of salvation is incredibly presumptuous. They accuse Protestants of being arrogant and presumptuous for saying or teaching that one can be assured of their salvation. Now, why do Roman Catholics teach that? Because they teach that one is saved as they cooperate with the sacramental system. As Roman Catholics believe the gospel and participate in the sacramental system, hopefully over a period of time, they'll have enough righteousness in them to actually be declared righteous. So they would say, how in the world can you know, Protestants, if you've done enough good things to actually be righteous, to be declared righteous? It's presumptuous of you to think that you can actually be assured that God has justified you. Now, Protestants teach that we can have assurance because our assurance has nothing to do whatsoever with our righteousness. We are looking away from ourselves to Jesus Christ, the righteous one. If you want to experience assurance of salvation, stop looking at yourself, stop looking within, look outside of yourself, look away from yourself, and look to Jesus who lived and died and rose from the grave for you. Your justification, your salvation, your assurance is rooted entirely outside of yourself in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we do wholeheartedly affirm and teach that it's possible for Christians to have assurance of salvation by simply believing the gospel. Assurance is the very essence of saving faith. Assurance is not found in our performance, but in the performance of Jesus Christ. But if you are looking away from yourself and looking to Jesus, you will eventually change over time, which brings us to the second ground, the second leg of the stool. The first ground of assurance is God's promise, ground two is God's fruit. God's promise, one leg, second leg, God's fruit. Remember, there's three legs to this stool. Well, God's promises are the primary ground. They're not the only ground. When God saves us, he does several amazing things simultaneously. Like what? He rips out our heart of stone Gives us a heart of flesh, Ezekiel 37. He breaks the power of sin in us, Romans 6. He makes us new creations in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He fills us with the Spirit. He writes his law on our hearts. If God has done all those things for you as a Christian, then surely over time you will produce fruit. It's inevitable. It's as inevitable as gravity. If God has saved you, and it's God who saves you, you don't save yourself. If God has regenerated you, 
filled you with the Spirit, written His law in your heart, then that will manifest itself in a changed life. Justification and sanctification are a package deal. They always go together. God sanctifies those he justifies. Well, Dave, can you prove that fruit inevitably follows saving faith? Yes. Several texts. Matthew 7, 16, Jesus simply says, you will recognize them <clears throat> by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? No, is the rhetorical answer. Jesus says that we know Christians by their fruit. How about James 2, 14 to 17? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? <clears throat> so also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I need some water, and I forgot to bring my water. If someone could bring me some water, that would, Dan's on it, Dan King's all over it. Wow, like six of you started sprinting. That's the fruit of salvation right there. <clears throat> so James is very clearly saying that if your faith is real, it will work. It will do something. 1 John 2, 3 and 5. And by this we know that we have come to know him. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. Verse 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him <clears throat> if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, that is, I know God, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. All these texts are clearly saying, if your faith is real, if you're looking to Christ, if you're looking away from yourself to Jesus with saving faith, then God will eventually change you. Now, at this point, people often make two errors. There is the error of easy believism. The person who's, who thinks, if I just believe certain facts about Jesus, I'm good to go. To this person, we must ask, since coming to faith in Christ, has anything changed in your life? In other words, has Christ inconvenienced you at all? What behaviors have changed? What have you repented of? If your life has not changed since coming to faith in Christ, even in the slightest, you shouldn't have much assurance. Well, is all hope lost for this person? No, of course not. Anyone, anywhere, at any time can turn away from their sins and put all their hope and confidence in Jesus, and they'll be saved. There's also the error of hard believism. There's easy believism and hard believism. What's hard believism? I'm referring to the overly scrupulous, subjectively oriented, introspective Christian. And to this person, we must say, the continuing presence of sin in your life does not mean you're not a Christian. Aren't you glad? I'm glad. 
God never promises he's going to perfect us in this life. Being a Christian does not mean that you are sinless. God often changes us very slowly over time to keep us humble and dependent on him in prayer. Columnist Andre Sue describes well the slow and often painful process and discouraging process of growth and godliness. She says this, you're still short-tempered, but a couple of times last month, you said you were sorry. Your marriage has, been, has had its peaks and valleys, but you're still together. You sin every day, but you don't find it pleasant anymore. You're not blasé about it anymore. You wish you could change. One thought in 10 in your head is a thought of gratitude, but that's way up from zero. You recently wrecked a relationship big time, but you went back and tried to make it right, feebly, timidly, awkwardly. But in the old days, you wouldn't have had even done that. The first thing on your mind when you wake up in the morning is still blank, blank, blank. It's Monday, but at least the ninth or tenth thing on your mind nowadays is the goodness of God. You used to spend 15 minutes obsessing to every one minute praying, but now the proportions are beginning to reverse. As time goes by, the things of earth seem thinner, and the things of heaven seem more concrete. Sorrows abound, but comforts more abound, and these are less and less the comforts of escapism, but those of reality, the soon and certain return of the king. Listen to this. The expectation is direction, not perfection. Are you facing in the right direction? And sometimes facing is all that we can do. I mean, most of us would prefer to be sprinting after Christ or jogging after Christ or walking after Christ or maybe crawling or maybe even leaning in that direction. But often, all we can do is face in that direction and beg God for mercy and ask him to help us grow and change. But if you're facing in the right direction and you want to follow, follow Jesus, although imperfectly, that's a good sign. One scholar says this, the fruit of the new birth in a person's life is indispensable evidence of salvation but it also demonstrates that genuine, albeit tiny, I love those two words, genuine, albeit tiny marks of grace should never be despised. Again, we're not talking about perfection. Someone who's a Christian is aware of their sin, they want to grow in godliness, they're trusting God's grace, they're facing in the right direction, but they know they're not perfect, which is why Jesus died for imperfect people. As we see fruit in our lives, we are making our calling and our election sure, 2 Peter 1, 10 to 11. We are not saved by fruit. We're saved by God's grace. But if we are genuinely trusting in Jesus Christ, eventually there will be some fruit. It may be tiny at first, 
And by the way, there's 12-year-old fruit and 17-year-old fruit and 35-year-old fruit. Keep that in mind as you work with your children. We're not saved by fruit, but it's evidence, or fruit is evidence that our faith is real. So we've looked so far at two of the grounds of salvation, God's promises and God's fruit. But there's a third leg to that stool, and that third leg is God's testimony. Now, this is the most subjective of the three tests, the three grounds, but it is nonetheless a test in Scripture. The Holy Spirit gives testimony that we are children of God. And there's several texts I could read. Let me read one of them, Romans 8, 15 to 17. The Apostle Paul says this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness or testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And there's a lot to say about this particular verse. But here's the main idea. If you are a genuine child of God, the Spirit of God comes and testifies with our spirit that we are his children causing us or forcing us to cry out, Abba, Father. By the way, that word Abba does not mean Daddy, despite what you've heard. The word Abba is a term of affection, but it's also a term of respect. It's, it's, it's a term of passion. So when the Spirit testifies that we are, are God's children, we cry out to Him, Abba, Father. Now, again, this is a very, very subjective um, test. And so I want to be careful with this. And not every Christian experiences this in the same way or at the same level. But I do hope and pray that all of us experience at least some of this to some extent in seasons of our lives. And if you haven't experienced this, let me encourage you to pray that God would allow you to experience this. Let me just read one brief story uh, of D.L. Moody, who experienced something of this testimony of God's Spirit, that he was, in fact, a child of God. D.L. Moody says this, I kept on crying all the time that God would fill me with his Spirit. Well, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It's almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he never spoke of for 14 years. I can only say, God revealed himself to me, and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. So Moody experienced something of the love of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, assuring him that he was, in fact, a child of God. Now, many, many years ago, I worked on a golf course, Manitou Golf and Country Club, I was riding one of the huge lawnmowers one day. It was a hot, hot August day. I was bored out of my mind, trying to stay awake, driving a $40,000 lawnmower. And I remember, I thought, well, I, sh I should sing some hymns to stay awake. So I'm singing several hymns that I knew. And as I was singing those hymns, something happened. And 
the love of Christ became so real to me by the power of the Holy Spirit that I began to weep uncontrollably and sob for about 20 minutes. I could hardly keep my eyes open. And in that moment, I was very, very aware that Jesus Christ loved me personally, that God was my Father, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, removing all of my guilt and shame. And in that moment, in those moments, the Spirit of God was testifying with my spirit that I was, in fact, a child of God. Now again, we need to be careful with this particular test or ground, because not every Christian experiences this in the same way. But nonetheless, I think we should pray that God would allow us to experience something like this, a close, subjective sense that we are, in fact, children of God, a close and intimate assurance of salvation. God has given us three grounds of assurance, three legs of a stool, God's promises, God's fruit, and God's testimony. And all three of these go together, but the most important, the thickest leg is the first one, God's promises. If you are believing God's promises, you should be assured, and that belief will lead to fruit. And the Spirit of God at times sees fit to come and assure us of our salvation because He loves us. Now that we've looked at these three grounds of assurance, let's apply this to four different types of people. So you have the three grounds, now the four people this applies to. And the first is the Christian who has assurance. If that's you, praise God. If you're believing in God's promises, and again, there's fruit in your life, and you've experienced that internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, that's a wonderful gift of God's grace to you, and that's normal for most Christians. If you've experienced that, rejoice and give thanks. Furthermore, if you've experienced that, it's really important that you help other Christians experience that. What do I mean? You can point out the evidences of God's grace in the lives of others. Some Christians, for whatever reason, don't experience a lot of assurance, but there's all kinds of evidence that God's at work in their lives. So you can go to them and say, brother or sister, I see in your life God's work. I see that you are growing in spiritual hunger. You're growing in humility. You're growing in service. You're growing in generosity. These all are signs or grounds or evidence that you're a child of God. Furthermore, parents, when your child professes faith, on one hand, you should rejoice and be glad. That could very well be a work of God's Spirit. At the same time, parents, consider not just the first ground, but the, the second two grounds as well. Do you see in that child a growing hunger for the things of God? Do you see a small amount of conviction of sin? Again, there is 8-year-old fruit and 12-year-old fruit and 17-year-old fruit and 35-year-old fruit. Keep that in mind. But if your child is genuinely converted, there will be some level of fruit, spiritual hunger, conviction of sin, a desire to repent of their sins. And if you see that in your child's life, encourage them and rejoice with them. That's the first group, the Christian who has assurance. The second group 
are all the Christians who don't currently have assurance. Let me say a few things. Again, God wants us to have assurance. 1 John 5.13, John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, implies that it's good that for us to know if we're Christians or not. This raises the question, why don't some, some Christians experience assurance? Well, Joel Beakey, a Presbyterian theologian, suggests several causes for a lack of assurance among the saints. Consider these. Maybe a conscious awareness of unrepented sin. Maybe it's a false conception of God and His gospel. Lack of clarity on justification by faith alone. Maybe a season of backsliding causes you to doubt that you're saved. Possessing a doubting or negative disposition. Some of us are just wired to be negative and to have doubts. Being unclear on the circumstances of your conversion. Looking for the wrong kind of experience. Neglecting the ordinary means of grace. Mental or physical exhaustion can cause one to doubt. Theologians talk about this important term. It's a big term. It's called psychosomatic unity. What that means is that the body and soul are intimately intertwined and connected. If your spirit's doing well, then maybe you're doing well physically. If you're doing poorly physically, it affects you spiritually. We are, uh, as human beings, we are closely uh, intertwined and connected, the body and the soul. So sometimes mental or physical exhaustion can cause you to not do well spiritually and to have doubts. Remember that it's possible to be a Christian and struggle with assurance for a season, maybe a long season. Thankfully, we are not justified by assurance. Justification is by faith alone, even if it's frail and feeble faith. If you don't have assurance, you should work for it. Well, why should Christians work for assurance? We're not working for salvation. We're working for assurance. There's a big difference. But why should you and I work for assurance? Consider the words of Hebrews 6, 11, and 12. The author of Hebrews says this, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The author of Hebrews is clearly saying that when you have assurance, it helps you to not be sluggish and to push yourself and to grow in godliness. Assurance brings joy. Assurance brings hope. Assurance brings peace. It motivates godliness. And assurance helps you and I talk to ourselves. As Christians, we spend far too much time listening to ourselves and not talking to ourselves. What do I mean by that? If you're assured of your salvation, you can constantly remind yourself, self, stop complaining, get a grip, your sins are forgiven, you're a child of God, no matter how you feel about that, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ alone to save you, he will declare you righteous, he will work all things for your good and his glory, and someday you will be in heaven. No matter how you feel about that right now, self, 
if you're trusting in Christ, you're forgiven. And the best is yet to come. Well, how should we work for assurance? First and foremost, we must meditate on God's promises. Back to the text that I read earlier, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you're struggling with assurance, read God's promises. Meditate on them until they sink deep into your soul. Romans 10, 9 to 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The more you and I meditate on God's gospel promises, the more assurance will sink down deep into our souls. Thomas Brooks, the great Puritan, said this, Let thy eye and heart first most and last, be fixed upon Christ, then will assurance bed and board with thee. If you doubt that you're a child of God, look to Christ, claim his promises. How else should we work for assurance? We should pray. Pray that God would testify with our spirits, by the power of God, that we are his children. And furthermore, we need to be involved in fellowship to experience full assurance. Because when our faith is weak, when our assurance is low, friends in the church can say to us, Dave or Joe or Sally, brother or sister, I see evidence of God's grace in your life. You should be encouraged. You may not see it, but we see it. And we want to point it out to you and encourage you that God is at work. Well, that brings us to the third group of people. So first is the Christian who has assurance. Second is the Christian who doesn't have assurance. And third is the non-Christian who has assurance. And this is by far the most dangerous place to be. Remember that it is possible to be deceived. Matthew 7, 22 to 23, Jesus says, On that day, that is the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Christ is implying that you can do all kinds of mighty things in his name and not be a Christian and be deceived. Remember that we are also called to test ourselves. 2 Corinthians 13.5. Paul writes, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. We can be deceived. And if that's you this morning, if you think maybe you're deceived, again, there's hope for you. All you have to do right now is say, Jesus, I might be deceived. I'm a sinner. 
I need desperately your grace and your forgiveness. I'm casting myself on you and asking you to forgive me, to come inside of me, and to change me. Remember, it's never too late to turn away from sin and to put your hope and confidence in Jesus. And if this is you, don't think I need to work really, really hard now to make sure that I'm saved. No. We work really, really hard because we're saved, motivated by grace. We are saved by grace through faith, not by our works. And finally, the last group of people are the non-Christians who know they're not saved, but they want to experience assurance. Well, if that's you, if you're here this morning and you're thinking, I'm not a Christian, but I would love to experience the forgiveness of sins. I would love to have God come and live inside of me and transform me because my life's a mess. I would love to have God help me reconcile relationships and give me purpose in life. I would love to go to heaven someday. I would love the assurance of knowing that I'm a child of God. Anyone, anywhere, at any time, can have assurance if they repent of their sins and decide to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. If that describes you this morning, God brought you here for a reason. And God wants you to turn away from your sins and put all your hope and confidence in Him. And if you do that, if you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ alone, you can begin to experience the assurance of salvation. Let's pray together.